the vibration of change, that magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. Yes, it can seem rather elusive to get there, but when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, and it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance, from the quality of your inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. Here on The Christine Uptrick Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Are you ready to step into your vibration of change? Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Christine Uptrick Show here live on Transformation Talk Radio and KKNW AM 1150 in the Seattle area. Um, I'm really excited about our show today, but I need to thank all the magicians behind the technology. First, Mr. Benny Mathers. Hey, Benny, how are you doing today? Hey, doing very well. I didn't know I had a supporting cast for my opening act. This is pretty good. I like this. Oh. Well, you said magician. Huh. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I'm like, let's roll with that. <laughs> and we, we have to admit it to our audience, okay? Doing this from home adds a whole other level mm -hmm. of complexity. And I know that you've been working like crazy, Benny, at your end in that studio and Transformation Talk Radio, Olivia, Jessica, they've been doing their magic at that end. And I'm like just trying to keep my cats from meowing too loudly on the other side of the door. I feel so. like you have a better challenge than we do, a bigger one. So, I mean. Oh, no, it's, <laughs> and, and it's all good. And I'm, I'm really grateful to be mm -hmm. safe and sound here at home. Um, it's been tough times here and uh, tough times all over the country. And in some areas, like we were we were ground zero, right, Benny? Yes, for, for the most part, yes, for the West Coast. Yeah, the, at, I mean, we had the first cases mm -hmm. of, the, of COVID-19, mm -hmm. um, but now it's permeated our country and it's a very sad state of affairs. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful to the first responders, all those who are helping keep society right. going. Right. And I'm also grateful to have a nice, warm home to be in. Um, I'm also grateful for our guest today. What we're going to be talking about today is something that I feel is past time to talk about in really concrete ways. And that is uh, bullying and bad behavior. We're in a society where there's bullying on the, the playground. There's cyberbullying. There's bad behavior in politics. And what's so strange about it is there are so many people who don't say anything. Um, and our guest today, I'm so grateful I connected with her on Twitter. You know, I don't, I, I do most of my posting on Facebook. I, I kind of hover about on Twitter and I'm looking to follow politics, but here's somebody who's a professor at Amherst College who has looked at the social science of why people don't act and why they do. She's also connecting the social science to, um, I mean, the social psychology to the neuroscience, which is really fascinating and helping all of us to understand better what gets in the way to keep us from acting. Because we like to think of ourselves as conscious, responsible human beings, but even people who have high integrity often don't act in certain situations. So that's what we're gonna be talking about today. And what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna to go to a 60 second break. Um, we're gonna make sure that, that all the technology is in alignment, but stay tuned for more on the other side of the break for Katherine Sanderson and 
why we act. The vibration of change, that magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. If you're like I am, it can be rather elusive to get there, but when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, don't you? And it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance, from the quality of that inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. On The Christine Upchurch Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Join me, Christine Upchurch, every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on KKNW AM 1150 and Transformation Talk Radio and learn new ways to step into your vibration of change. Welcome back to the Christine Upchurch Show here on KKNW AM 1150 in the Seattle area and Transformation Talk Radio uh, around the world. Oh my goodness, I'm really excited about our guest today. We are going to be talking to Professor Katherine Sanderson. She is the Manuel Family Professor in Life Sciences at Amherst College. Uh, I went to UMass Amherst for my undergrad, so it's my old stomping ground. Amherst College is an amazing university. And she's the author of several psychology textbooks. Um, also, she's the author of a book entitled The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health, and Longevity. And she has a new book out called Why We Act. It's turning bystanders into moral rebels. And um, she is, um, she lectures around the country and she was chosen by the Princeton Review as one of the best college professors in America. And her work has been featured in the Atlantic, the Washington Post, CBS and NBC, and now on the lowly Christine Upchurch show. Very grateful to have her here, Dr. Katherine Sanderson. Hey, Katherine. Thank you so much for the invitation to talk. I I'm, have been looking forward to this for a couple months and of course had no idea we would be doing it during the midst of a pandemic. Yeah. Um, but this is an important part of, of normal life for me is talking about psychology, uh, not washing my hands constantly. So thank you right. for this opportunity. <laughs> no, and I'm very grateful to have you here. And yes, it, it's a bit of a surprise, although there are many experts out there who say it's not a surprise, right? Um, and in the midst of all this, from a political perspective, we still have bullying. From a cyber perspective, we still have name calling and bullying. Um, we've got a lot of negativity going on at a time when I would think that our country would sort of come together and be less combative. And so I think that your book is so timely, so timely right now. Um, and I just want to ask you first, I'm always curious about authors. I know how difficult it is to write a book. You know, it's kind of like birthing a baby, the gestation and the birthing process isn't necessarily easy. And I want to know why it is, Catherine, that you chose to write this particular book. That's a really great question. So thanks for starting with that. And, and what's sort of funny is that I had just written another book, as you described in my intro, The Positive Shift. So I'd written this book. It was released just about a year ago. And of course, it's very much on happiness and positive mindset, you know, and so on. And so I was doing right. lots of promotion of that book. And in the middle of that promotion, something happened um, to my son, my oldest child, who was at that time 
a freshman in his first couple weeks of college. And he called me and said, a student died in my dorm last night. Wow. And as a mom, as a professor, I was just um, struck by the story. And the story is not one that is unfamiliar. It's, you know, a student was drinking, uh, he fell and hit his head and 19 hours went by before his friends, his roommates, you know, people around him called 911, 19 hours. Wow. And the student, right? And um, the, the student's family was called, they flew in and they were with him uh, when he was disconnected from life support. But my son told me that story and I gotta be honest, I just, I, I was, it's all I could think about. I mean, it was literally all I could think about as a mom, as a professor. And so I'm in the midst of doing, you know, this promotion of this happiness book, but all I'm really thinking about is what led those kids to not get help for that kid faster. And, and right. so honestly, I, I started working on this book almost immediately. Um, and, and so I would be doing these promotional calls about happiness and health. And what I was reading in my spare time was the Holocaust, lynchings, mm -hmm. bullying, hazing, um, because I really wanted to understand it because I really wanted to help people make a different choice in that moment. So that's honestly, it was very personal, you know, what led to, to what prompted me to write this book. And one of the things I find so fascinating that you detail in your book is that when people do bad things, and sometimes even horrific things, they're not necessarily sociopaths or monsters. Um, what does the research say about, you know, people who, who make bad choices like that? Right. And, and I think that's one of the most fundamental pieces that, that many people misunderstand. And as part of my working on this book, I read another book that I highly recommend written by Sue Klebold called um, A Mother's Reckoning. And it's a book written by one of the moms of one of the Columbine shooters. So, you know, people can remember that story. Of and, course. Uh, of course, right? And and what she describes is, you know, people think, well, she must be a bad parent and, you know, he was a sociopath and so on. Now, right. obviously, you know, that's an, a really extreme example of somebody committing a school shooting. But, but what the research says is that there are lots of people who are good people and, and yet what they do in the moment is fail to speak up. And so mm -hmm. if I look at those kids who were at my son's college sitting around, they were trying to be helpful. They mm -hmm. were aware that the kid was in trouble. They strapped a backpack around his shoulders to keep him from rolling onto his back and choking in his own vomit. They wanted to be helpful. They weren't sociopaths. Right. But what they failed to do was to take action. And yeah. that's what was really fascinating to me is it, my book is not about sociopaths. My book is not about, you know, serial killers. Uh -huh. My book is about normal, sane, healthy, good people who in the moment fail to step up and say, hey, stop it, cut it out, call 911, whatever. That's right. what my book is about. And it's... One of the things I find so fascinating is the fact that um, this isn't just an isolated incident. The, the situation with your son 
Um, I've heard so many stories of hazing gone awry. I've heard so many stories of people hearing that somebody was in trouble somewhere and they did nothing, or they saw an argument between two people in a parking lot and, you know, something didn't feel right about it. And yet, you know, they backed off. So the question is, what is it that keeps people from acting? Right. And, and one of the things that I've loved about writing this book and, and talking about this book, and I think when you and I first connected on Twitter, you, you really identified that as an issue, that you could think about other stories. And what I've loved uh, talking about this book is that everybody says, oh my gosh, that reminds me of a time. And then they tell me a story. I was at an airport. I was at a hockey game. I was at a whatever. And they have some story about themselves or their children or whatever, right. because it's really a universal phenomenon, right? It's a universal it phenomenon. Is. And and the question, your question uh, of what stops people from acting is it kind of differs in different situations. So in some cases, it's really, we don't understand what's going on, you know, that it's ambiguous. So we hear a couple arguing or we overhear a comment and we're not really sure how to interpret it. So the yeah. students in my um, son's school, we've all seen people who are drunk <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and we don't routinely call 911, uh -huh. you know, for drunk people, Sure, nor, nor should we, right? And, and so there's a case where it's very ambiguous. So in some cases, we don't really recognize what's going on. We see something, but we don't know, is that an emergency? In other cases, we recognize um, this is an emergency, but we don't think it's our responsibility to do something. So we know something bad is happening. And the example that I use for that, which I describe in the book, and I think a lot of people really resonate with, is who remembers that case two or three years ago now of that man who was dragged off a United Airlines plane in Chicago, right? Oh my goodness, yes. You totally know what I'm talking about. Everyone it was knows horrible. Talking, right? it, it was horrible. horrible. Yeah. And here's the, the key. You know it was horrible. And I know it was horrible. And your listeners know it was horrible. Because everybody on that plane recognized it was horrible. And so they started shooting video, right? They took out yes. their cell phones and they yeah. recorded. And then they posted to social media. So everybody on that plane understood it was horrible. But guess what? No one on that plane did. Stand Try to intervene. Right. Try to intervene. Stop dragging that man down the aisle. Stop. Okay. And so yeah. what's so fascinating about that case is that that's a case in which it wasn't ambiguous. That's why people filmed it. They filmed it because it was really bad and they knew it was really bad. But you're just a passenger sitting on a plane. You're okay. not the pilot. You're not in charge. You're not, you know, whatever. And, and so everyone sat and filmed it but no one stood up. And so that's another example in that sometimes it's not ambiguous, but we don't take personal responsibility and that yeah. also inhibits action, right? So what does it have to do with authority? I think about um, the, you know, the authorities coming onto the plane and, and dragging this man away. Um, and we're in a situation where we've already gone through security. We've, we've, We've basically, you know, signed our rights away to our, our full-size shampoo, you know, whatever it is. And there we are in vulnerable situation where we're not in charge. What, what does the science say and what does the research say about, um, you know, be, taking less action when we're not in charge? Right. So there's a, there's a term in psychology 
that's called social loafing. So that's the term, social loafing. And, okay. and, and basically, I think people often think about this as the hitchhiker problem. Um, it's why college students often don't like group projects, because the reality is when there are a lot of people in a group, each person can individually say, well, it's not my responsibility. You know, right. somebody else will, will um, get it done. Uh, for those of us, you know, me, many people have worked yes. as a waiter or waitress at some point. Uh, here's the key. Waiters and waitresses totally get this because it's why restaurants impose a mandatory tip on uh, large groups of people eating because people oh, right. overwhelmingly in a large group are like, well, you know, I only had the salad or I didn't have wine or, you know, whatever. I'm going to under tip. Um, yes. and, it's, and, it, and that's an example of social loafing. So the reality is that in group settings, many people are like, well, somebody else could help. Why does it have to be me? And uh -huh. that inhibits action. So on a United Airlines plane, there's 300 other people or whatever who could step up and act. Why uh -huh. does it have to be me? And that, of course, in psychology is called the bystander effect, is that uh -huh. when there are more people in a situation, we often don't feel obliged to help. I bet if that man had been dragged off in a smaller setting in which there were only two or three people, people uh -huh. actually might have stood up and said, hey, 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 you know, leave him alone. But the right. problem is when there's so many people who could act, each individual person doesn't feel so obligated to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that the this concept of the more people there are, less responsibility you take um, is rather disturbing when you extrapolate that to more, you know, broader society and political action in particular. Um, what do you feel is going on right now in our country in particular, where there's a lot of of inappropriate behavior, you know, negative action, selfish, narcissistic, you know, behavior. And there are many people who don't even pay attention or don't speak up. Right. And, and that also leads to, I think, another fundamental factor that inhibits action, and that is fear of the consequences, right? Uh, yes. What are the consequences, right? So, so another factor is that even when people are like, ah, I really should say something, there are lots of cases in which saying something is actually consequential. And, uh -huh. and that can include at a political level. So, well, do I really wanna call out my uncle's bad comment at the Thanksgiving yes. dinner table? Like, is that gonna create you know, this friction? Sure. Um, I, I think that on a personal level, it can also have professional consequences. So sometimes people in a work setting say, oh, yes. yeah, yes. right? That wasn't really appropriate or I kind mm -hmm. of recognize that that wasn't cool, but if I say something, maybe I'm not going to get that promotion. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm not going to be seen as a team player. Um, yeah. And so I think this also really happens at a professional level that people worry, will I offend somebody if I call out bad behavior? And, and I think mm -hmm. we worry about the consequences. And I think we worry about that at a political level. But I think we worry about that in lots of different surrounds in which people worry, oh, well, the bully is then going to attack me or I'm yeah. gonna get called out. And so we do fear the personal consequences, the professional consequences from speaking up. And one of the things that I've been pondering a lot about lately is the pluses and minuses of tribalism. You know, Finding our tribe where there are positive connections that are supportive to our growth, you know, whether it's personal or professional, um, can be wonderful. And yet, tribalism can be toxic. 
what does the, the research say about this, the, the tribalist aspect of um, this dysfunction of not acting? Yeah, that, that's a, a wonderful example. And I'm going to tell you a story that I describe in the book that I think just epitomizes the level at which tribalism matters. So what they did in this study was they had people come in to do a psychology study, and then they left the building and the researchers created an emergency. And so the emergency was a man running and then falling and tripping and sort of, you know, saying my ankle, my ankle. So a clear emergency, totally unambiguous. Um, and you're the only person around, so there's no diffusion of responsibility. So, you know, are you going to help or not? But here's what they varied. The t-shirt the person was wearing. <laughs> in half of the cases, and these were all, I'm sorry, I should have said this at the beginning. These were all very big soccer fans who were doing the, the study. So then, it and it was done in the United Kingdom. So they, in some cases, the person is wearing uh, a soccer t-shirt that is of the same team that the person who's observing the accident favors. In uh -huh. another case, it's of the opposing team. They're arch rivals. So here's okay. the thing. Tribalism matters at such a level that you are more likely to help the person who is a fan of your same soccer team than if it's a person wow. of your different soccer team. So that's a level at which that isn't race, it's not religion, it's not ethnicity, it's not gender, it's not national origin. It's nothing that we sort of think of as, well, that must be evolutionarily adaptive, you know, to favor sure. our in-groups. Tribalism at the level of helping a fan of your same team more than you help another person who's equally in need. And so, yeah, absolutely. We are more likely to reach out and help somebody if they favor our team, if they're similar to us, if they're in our in-group, if they're in our tribe, than somebody who's not. Absolutely. So Catherine, is there an effect if um, the, the, the more of their, their tribal members are with them? Like if they were by themselves, is it different than if they were with some others who were say, this, fans of the same team. Yes. So, so what's very clear is that we want to be liked by members of our group. We want members of our group to think we're a good person, you know, and so on. And so in some cases, we in fact are in that example, more likely to say, oh yes, let me illustrate, you know, how helpful I am and, and help this person who's also part of our group. The challenge becomes that it's also very hard to deviate from group pressure. So in cases, for example, of fraternity hazing, oh. it can be very hard to call out bad behavior by a group member, even if it means not giving somebody help. So tribalism is complicated because in some cases it can lead us to be, oh, look at me, I'm such an upstanding citizen. I'm gonna help this person and, and look, I'm right. a hero. But in other cases it can mean, well, I can't call out bad behavior by someone like me and that can also inhibit action. Oh. This is absolutely fascinating. And I know that there's lots more to say about why people don't act. Um, we're gonna go to a quick break, but when we return, Catherine, let's chat about, first of all, some of the rest of the science that is so fascinating. The, the research is really fascinating. And um, we'll also talk about what it is we need to change in terms of what we teach people and what we do ourselves so that we don't become the bystander. Absolutely. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for more with Dr. Katherine Sanderson here in just a few moments. I'm Peggy Snow with another Stellar Reflections Minute. 
presence, or what we think of as being fully in the moment, is a key element in the process of healing work. As a practitioner facilitating a session, genuine presence takes us out of our heads where we tend to decide what is and maybe what should be for the client and moves us into direct experience where we're available to witness the person in their wholeness. In this receptive realm, our senses are heightened and expanded, allowing us to perceive what's seeking to unfold and to interact in the moment. There's something profoundly powerful that happens when healing is approached in this simple, pure way. Balance can be restored and healing can take place on multiple levels. If you'd like more information about the services we offer at Stellar Reflections, visit us at StellarReflections.com or call 425-999-9836. That's 425-999-9836. This is Debbie Pokornik with a break-free parenting tip. Parenting will always be a bit of a mystery. Who knows why some parenting ideas work and others do not? Or why some kids seem to succeed despite family setbacks, while others have so much given to them and yet fail to thrive? The one thing we do know is that once you have a child, you'll never be quite the same again. Awe-inspiring emotions like overwhelming love, extreme guilt, intense frustration, and incredible joy make this job second to none. Breaking free of parenting pressures means recognizing the pieces that make us unique, the pieces that we carry with us from the past, and the pieces that are influenced by the society we live in. When we can pick and choose which pieces we want to keep around and change the others to align with our inner wisdom, we will feel more self-assured in our role as a parent. For information and to work with Debbie, visit EmpoweringNRG.com. The Vibration of Change that magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. If you're like I am, it can be rather elusive to get there, but when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, don't you? And it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance. From the quality of that inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. On the Christine Upchurch Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Join me, Christine Upchurch, every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on KKNW AM 1150 and Transformation Talk Radio and learn new ways to step into your vibration of change. Are you meeting your sales goals? Or maybe your business plan could use a dose of the divine. Tune in to Divinely Driven Results with faith-based business coach Elise Smith on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Coach Elise Smith helps listeners get unstuck from their business plateau and become empowered through divine guidance. Build up belief in yourself and your dreams and learn business strategies that work for you for real lasting results. Learn more by visiting www.DivinelyDrivenResults.com. Welcome back to the Christine Upchurch Show here on KKNW AM 1150 in the Seattle area and on Transformation Talk Radio around the world. Um, you might be listening after the fact on one of the dozens of podcasts that sends up or on ChristineUpchurch.com. But if you've been a part of this conversation, if you've been listening here, oh my goodness, you don't want to miss the second half. We're talking to Dr. Katherine Sanderson. She's the author of Why We Act. I don't know if that's getting reversed or not. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to remember why we act. 
turning bystanders into moral rebels. Oh my goodness, Catherine, I'm so fascinated by all this research. And, you know, I like to think of myself as having high integrity and, and making moral choices. But boy, oh boy, I can, I can see myself in situations, you know, where there's this group mentality and um, I haven't spoken up in certain situations, not for something as, as dramatic as a hazing accident, but, um, you know, I, I, how is it that we can think we're moral, we, we have good upbringings, and yet in certain situations we choose not to act? Yes, and, and one of the things that's been so interesting to me is that everyone can find themselves in this book somewhere, right? Oh yeah. yes, that's a, there's a time that I didn't or a time that I should have or you know whatever. Um, and I think the challenge is, is that we really think about bad acting as doing something bad, right? Like a, you know, right. doing, committing a hazing act or saying something, you know, racist or homophobic or whatever. And, and you know, many of us don't do those things, right? And we are yeah. proud of ourselves for, for not doing that. Right. I think the challenge is that um, we often stay silent. And in fact, the, although the official title of the book is Why We Act, and that is the title, um, the title that I originally had submitted this book to my publisher with was actually The Appalling Silence of the Good People. Oh, that, I like that. And, and, and that is the Martin Luther King quote. So it's not my words, it's Martin Luther King uh -huh. quote. But, but to me, that's how I thought about the book. I thought about the book as it's not about the psychopaths, you know, it's not about the sociopaths. It's about the appalling silence of the good people. Um, and, and that's who I want to speak to, because the reality is, you know, sociopaths are not going to buy this book and, and learn yeah. from it and embrace it. That's true. And, and also, fortunately, there are very few people who are actually psychopaths and sociopaths. But the, the key uh -huh. is there are a whole hell of a lot of us, including me and including probably you, who have, have at times been a silent good person. Mm -hmm. And my hope in writing this book was to give the many, many silently good people tools and strategies for understanding their silence and inaction and strategies to overcome that. That was my entire goal was to help us silent good people learn to do something different. And I think about a variety of situations. Like if you're at Thanksgiving dinner with an uncle who's racist and is um you know never going to change his behavior you might speak up and ask that he not say it but you know you're not really going to affect any change and it and it's not going to necessarily affect anybody else around the table except you know for the you know they, they, they all cringe it's the sort of thing where it's just him so whether you say something or not it's really not going to have too much of an effect but there are plenty of situations where standing up, taking action, saying something can have a profound effect for those around you and for the person you know, you're engaging with. Uh, how do you kind of assess when it's important to stand up or do you, is your perspective that it's always important to stand up? So I, I think that's a, a very important question. And I think it's actually, I don't, I think in an ideal world, of course, we would all always stand up. We would all always do the right thing. But to me, where it really comes down to is there are cases, as you describe in that, you know, racist uncle at Thanksgiving or whatever, um, in which the person is not going to change. And I think 
to me, the question then becomes, what is my silence conveying to other people around? And uh-huh. and that's and, and the key thing for me is that often the person who's saying the thing or doing the thing, they may not change, they may not understand, they may not care. But the question is, if no one speaks up, often that's conveying to other people in the in the surround, oh, I, there's tacit approval and agreement with that comment. Okay. So, um, an example that I give in the book, again, a personal example is there was a student in my office one day who was on the basketball team at Amherst College mm-hmm. and, you know, very good student, very strong student. But he said to me, as I was talking about this book, he said, it's really interesting because every day when I'm in the locker room, someone says something offensive <laughs> and, and sometimes I speak up and sometimes I don't. So I found that story fascinating. First of all, that he would share that with me, that this in fact was going on. Second of all, that he was self-aware that he knew that these were problems, but then also understanding when he chose to speak up versus not. And so the key is, is that if you hear something in a locker room or in a meeting or, you know, whatever, and you don't speak up, it's conveying to other people, oh yeah, people agree with it. And what's interesting Uh to me is in that case, there might be a whole lot of other people in that locker room, that meeting, that, you know, dinner table who are like, oh my goodness, that's offensive. But if no one says anything, it conveys that's okay. So if I'm a parent at that Thanksgiving dinner table, I might understand my racist uncle isn't going to change, but I might think it's really important as a mom to convey to my own kids that that's not okay and that that's offensive and that's hurtful. So to me, it often comes down to, I'm not trying to change the person who's saying or doing it. What I'm trying to illustrate to other people around is that I don't support that and I don't agree with it. And I don't want people to think my silence is tacit approval and agreement with that language or behavior. So to me, it's actually about the audience, not the person who's doing it. I, I love that because it, in a sense, it's first of all, speaking out for your perspective, but and it's giving other people permission to sort of bring their own discomfort to the forefront and it's helping to affect both the perspective and the potential future action of the tribe so to speak well absolutely and and the and the challenge is is that if no one speaks up the person who's saying or doing something is like yeah people kind of agree with me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so it also, even if it may not change that person's views or behavior, it may make him or her more self-aware, right? That, huh, maybe yeah. not everyone really appreciates it when I say X, or maybe yeah. there is kind of a consequence. And so I think in that sense, um, we actually perform a valuable service by calling out bad behavior. And, mm-hmm. and I think it also, often it just takes one person just to stay and then stand up and say something. And then other people might be like, oh yeah, you know what? I also found this, you know, disrespectful, or I also found this offensive. And so being the first person is really hard, but often if one person will speak up, other people will also support that view. Mm-hmm. Well, it, I, I'm sure that that's not always the case though, because sometimes uh, speaking out amongst, you know, again, I'm thinking in terms of tribe, uh, can kind of banish us from the tribe. And one of the things I found so fascinating in your book is you talk about sort of coming from this outsider perspective can r- really help to create moral change. 
what what is it about sort of being in like an outsider or outsider in the moment that is important for us to choose to do? So I think the key thing is that most of us find problematic behavior inappropriate and problematic. Most of us would like to have the world be a sort of kinder, gentler place and so on. Right. And the key is in order to affect that change, people have to start acting. That, that we can't all sort of be silent all the time and sort of yeah. hope that things will change. And so I think the key is, is that if we can take small steps, it, it doesn't have to be you know, the hero, you know, jumping into a burning building, you know, saving somebody. It can uh -huh. be taking small steps to change social norms in our, our workplace, in our school, in our college, you know, in our family, you know, whatever it is in our community. And that taking those small steps can actually help affect change that basically leads people to live in a kinder, gentler world that we all benefit from. I'm thinking of an example that I saw in, on social media, the local neighborhood group I belong to, and they were talking about how there's some people who are getting really snippy with um, employees in grocery stores because there's not any toilet paper, not any, you know, sanitize, hand sanitizer, those sorts of things, or because there are long lines and, um, I, I think in terms of being in a situation like that, if somebody is getting snippy with somebody to have a local bystander say, you know what, that person's working really hard. I'm so grateful to you for what you're doing that that can not only diffuse the situation for the employee, but it can also kind of speak out saying it's not okay to, to take out the stress of our you know, horrible situation right now on somebody who's showing up for work and a minimum wage job to make sure you've got groceries. Yeah, that's a lovely example. And that's such a timely example. And, and there's a case in which that it's gonna make that person feel better, the person who you, you know, sort of stood up for and said, you know, don't give that person such a hard time. Uh -huh. But it's also going to be modeling that behavior for other people in the line behind or at the next register or whatever. And it's also modeling behavior that other people could use, oh, there's an example of somebody standing up and saying something, I could do that same thing later on. Um, right. And so that's an example of how one person can model, can demonstrate, and other people can then model that behavior. And that's how we shift social norms. Mm -hmm. So we're in a situation right now, Catherine, where we've got a lot of bullying from somebody who many consider to be a narcissist at the helm of our country here in the United States. And I think that there are many people who've become numb to the bullying, the name calling, the, the bad behavior. Why is it that, that people will go from, I'm thinking of like senators in particular right now, Republican senators in particular, they could go from criticizing calling a spade a spade to being silently complacent. What, what happens psychologically to create that kind of thing? Yes, and, and I one of the things that was most fascinating to me about working on this book, I'm not a political scientist, of course, I'm a psychologist, um, but I, I investigated in a fair amount of depth, and I talk about this in um, chapter eight about sort of workplace issues, and in particular about the, you know, the, uh, 
never Trumpers group. And what's been interesting to me in, in working on this book is that actually there's a lot of attention that has been paid to it by people who maybe wouldn't traditionally endorse a book written by a, you know, a pr psychology professor in Western Massachusetts. So, you know, right. uh, Bill Crystal and George Conway, you know, were kind enough to, to blurb my book. And I think it's because it really spoke to them. Yeah. And here's the reality. The reality is that when there are Republican senators who have spoken out, and I, and I actually think of the example of Mitch Romney. So oh. Mitch Romney, I, and, and in fact, you know, I, I think of Mitch Romney as a moral rebel, right? Yes, because, yes. Because Mitch Romney said, this isn't okay. You know, he was the only senator, I think, in the history of the United States to vote to impeach a president of his same party. He actually mm -hmm. stands alone in that. And, and what I think is fascinating is that Mitch Romney did so and suffered consequences, you know, that, that other senators called him out. He was, you know, not invited to a a pretty famous um, Republican group. It uh, happened to have needed. a lot of coronavirus in it, by the way. Yeah, but exactly. <laughs> so, so it turned out to be a blessing, right? It turned out yes. maybe saved his life. Um, yeah. But but there's an example. And, and what I think is fascinating is if you look at Mitch Romney, what do we know? Well, one, we know that Mitch Romney's religious faith, his Mormon faith is very, very important to him. And that mm -hmm. is a faith that, is, of course, um, really is about helping those who are less fortunate. There's lots of focus on on giving and, and sort of that broader community worldwide. Mm -hmm. Mitch Romney also came from a father um, who was involved in politics, who in fact was also very much a moral rebel. And, and his father uh, during the 1960s was very much not towing the line with some of the direction of the Republican Party at that time. So mm -hmm. Mitch Romney, I think, grew up. And one of the things that I found fascinating as a mom, I've got three kids, is that we learn to be a moral rebel from looking to our parents, you know, right. that sort of social modeling. And so I actually find Mitt Romney's decision to be, uh, Mitt Romney's uh, decision to be really famous and, and sort of inspirational in the sense of somebody who was willing to buck the, the common trend and to have a backbone, um, even understanding that there would be personal consequences. Yeah. And on the flip side of that are these people who criticized Trump early on, who became some of his, you know, biggest supporters. I think about the, the proverbial frog in the tepid water that's brought to boiling that never jumps out of the pot. What is it about situations where, you know, I'm thinking of the, the political situation right now, but I think any situation where you kind of shift your mores to fit in with a tribe that you necessarily would not have fit into at, you know, at some point in your life when it's sort of taking the, the downward trend in terms of moral responsibility. What, how does that happen? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's exactly illustrated in the example you gave of people who initially you know, opposed Trump or you know, refused to vote for Trump, in fact, sometimes openly you know, didn't vote for Trump. You know, I think of Lindsey Graham, for example. Uh -huh. um, and, and what you see, it's really, it's called the slippery slope. And the reality is that slippery slope explanation um, means that there's a little bad act and you kind of don't call it out and then it gets worse and then it gets worse and then it gets worse and it becomes very hard psychologically for us to know how to pull ourselves out. Because in order to say, finally, this is wrong, we have to come to terms with the fact that we didn't say this was wrong, the 14 earlier examples. And, and, and that happens, I mean, that explains, you know, Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, 
you know, that, right. that had, you know, literally bankrupt, you know, many, many people led to his um, prison. And, and that's the same thing as he started with just a little bit of fraud and then a little bit of embezzlement. And, and, yeah. and that plays out again and again, it frankly plays out with, um, with sexual assault and harassment. You know, the, the Harvey Weinstein thing that you, you, right. you start down the thing and you don't get caught and you don't get caught and no one calls you out and, uh-huh. and it escalates. And so we see that in lots of different circumstances. And one of my favorite parts of the book is in chapter 10. And, and one of my pieces of, of advice is sweat the small stuff, sweat the small stuff, because often we, we ignore the small stuff. We ignore the small stuff and then we find ourselves in that boiling water like the frog and yeah. it's too late. Yeah, and I think about the the inner um, exploration and, and acceptance of ourselves. It would be so difficult once we've gone down that slippery slope um, that it's it's much easier to change as you're saying with the small stuff in the, that moment before you go down that slope because I think that there are going to be some people who are going to have a hard time facing themselves. Um, and from my perspective, they may not face themselves until after death. Um, but that's, that's my own belief that we, we sort of evaluate our, our lives. Uh, and sometimes from a very human perspective, I'm really grateful. I believe in karma. Uh, <laughs> okay. So before we go any further, I want to make sure that people know how to connect with you, Catherine, because uh, you've got a lot of wisdom to share. I know you, you do speaking engagements, although I, you're probably not out and about right now. <laughs> uh, what's your website and how can people connect with you? Yeah, so my website, thank you for asking, is sandersonspeaking.com. Um, and I also am on Instagram. Every day I post Sanderson Speaking. And I'm on Twitter at Sanderson Speaks. Um, and, and if people go to any of those formats, they can you know find information about uh, speaking engagements when they get rescheduled eventually, or you know, um, webinars or other things I'm doing. I also want to just put a little plug in that if people are so inclined to to buy my book, which I of course I do hope people will do, I'm really thinking that we need to support independent bookstores, and so yeah, I'm yeah. really encouraging people um, to see if their local store you know delivers or ships. Um, because I worry about independent bu- businesses. I worry about restaurants, you know, independent bookstores. And we're going to get through this pandemic, but we need to make sure that our local establishments also get through this pandemic. And so I'm just really encouraging people whenever possible to support, you know, community uh, businesses that that really are very near and dear to their own heart. Yeah, and that's a great message. Um, okay, so here we are knowing that it's, easy to fall into the perspective of of the tribe or the behavior of the tribe we can end up going down that slippery slope Uh, there are many ways in which we will take an ambiguous situation and not act Uh, and you've laid out some approaches that can help us shift but i'm thinking from a sort of a higher level perspective how do we deal with this, say, from school-age children on up so that we don't have to kind of backtrack and, and fix this as adults? 
Right, and, and actually some of the most important work I think right now is being done in school settings. So um, chapter six of my book actually examines specifically the process of bullying and what happens. And what I think is so important is yes, if students in elementary school, in middle school even, um, before high school, uh, get the tools and strategies for stepping up, for not being passive bystanders, those tools will stay with them throughout their lives. And it will help them in high school, in college, it will help them beyond. And, mm -hmm. and so what I really think is that as a society, if we could start by teaching children, teaching young teenagers how to be moral rebels, how to speak up, how to not mm -hmm. stay silent, those tools and strategies will help shift the world. And I think in particular about the, the teen years. And, you know, I've, I've got two sons, I've seen them go through their teenage years. And they start to, I mean, the first tribe, of course, is our family. And the next tribe are the peers, the teenage peers, they care much more about what their, their peers think than what their parents think, or their teachers think. How is it as parents, we can help kids who are teens understand that it's okay to be um, outspoken within the, their tribe, to be moral rebels in the small ways? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's such an important and very practical question. Uh, so I think one thing is that helping students develop empathy, helping our children develop a sense of, can you put yourself in somebody else's shoes? Because mm -hmm. it's far easier to speak up if you say, oh my gosh, that person's being bullied. Um, I, I connect with that person who's being bullied and I want them to feel better or that person's being you know, teased about something or whatever. So helping people develop uh, empathy and perspective taking, encouraging that is so important. I think the other thing, and I'm, I'm holding out a lot of hope for this, is that research actually shows that teenagers, children who argue with their moms, uh -huh. uh, in fact, are better able to stand up because they've actually gotten practice arguing. And if that, in fact, is That's the case, you know, my 15-year-old daughter is in super shape in terms uh -huh. of standing up. Uh, because <laughs> basically what they're doing is they're practicing arguing with mom, and that helps them be able to then argue with their peers. Um, so in, in fact, kids who are more compliant and obedient um, have more trouble because they haven't developed that argumentative uh, skill and strategy. Yeah. And so that's actually something that we often think, you know, you know, I wish my kid would just kind of accept, you know, my word is, you know, oak and, and you know, follow what I'm saying. But in mm -hmm. fact, practicing arguing at home helps kids in school settings argue effectively. And I think about that as being like a, a strong individuation mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. allows the the kid to think for him or herself mm -hmm. um, and to see him or herself as separate from others. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. And uh, I, I also want to give a shout out to Roots of Empathy because they deal with it in like, the, I think the elementary school setting and their program has shown some amazing results. Okay, so here we are. We, we are who we are at this point. We're in a situation, I think politically and worldwide, socially, that's very toxic. Catherine, do you have hope that we're gonna get ourselves into a much more positive situation? 
I'm going to tell you about the thing that gives me the most hope. And, and, here's, um, and here's the story that I'll, that I'll share. When my daughter was born, literally the day of her birth, uh, Massachusetts became the first state to legalize gay marriage. So the day of her birth, and she was born in Massachusetts, Massachusetts became the first state to legalize gay marriage. 11 years later, um, the Supreme Court ruled uh, gay marriage is legal across the land. So that was 11 years later, Supreme Court said every state gay marriage is legal. And I remember turning to my daughter, Caroline, at the time, she was 11. And I said, I just cannot believe that the day you were born, Massachusetts became the first state to legalize gay marriage. And 11 years later, it's, it's true everywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. And she turned to me and said, what took so long? And what struck me is 11 years is not long <laughs> to, uh-huh. to look at a shift in a country. So when I was in high school, when I was in college, the idea that we would ever have gay marriage be legal, yeah. impossible to imagine. And mm-hmm. as you and I are talking, um, we saw a major candidate for president be openly gay. Yes. And 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 who would have thought that was possible? And, and he so, did fairly well there for a while too. Did, which I was, mean, he was in you know the top. I mean, he won some primaries. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it was not just a fringe candidate. He was a leading contender to be president of the United States. Right. And and gosh. That strikes me as what a change, right? What a change from my own high school experience, from my own college experience. And now my kids are growing up and gay marriage is legal and we might have a gay president in our lifetime. Like we very well might. And so that gives me hope. That gives me tremendous hope that change is possible. Yeah, and we might actually have a woman president at some point too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a whole other conversation. A whole other conversation. But I'll say I have a, a very good friend who's a dean at Amherst College where I work and um, she and I, and, and she's black and she and I continued to have lunch leading up to Obama's, um, you know, first, uh, first election. And we got about uh, 20 seconds left here. Oh, okay. And, and she and I kept saying, America will never elect a black man. And, and we both were like, never, never. And she texted me at like 1201, the night that Obama won and said, we were wrong. So what yes. do we know? Maybe a woman yes. president as well. Thank you for this. And I love the fact that you're you're teaching people how to become moral rebels, why we act, Dr. Katherine Sanderson. Katherine, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you so much. Stay safe. You too. And thank you all for joining us here today. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to empower yourself to step further into your vibration of change, please visit my website at christineupchurch.com where you can learn more about my insights, upcoming events, and private sessions.